0: The Australian Defence Magazine podcast, serving the business of defence, with Grant McHeron and Ewan Levick. Hi everyone and welcome back to the show. This episode we'll be chatting with Alex Quirk and Keshav Sundaresh from Altair on digital twins and testing through computer simulations. Gentlemen, welcome to the show. Yeah, thank you. Thank you for having us. And of course, we're also joined once again by Ewan Levick, publisher at ADM Group. Ewan, how are you doing today? Yeah, I'm really good, Grant. Thanks. Well, we're here uh, in the session to have a chat, like I said, about digital twins and testing through computer simulations and so on. But first off, Alex, can you provide an overview of Altair? Uh, Not the full depth, but just something so that those who may not know of Altair can get an understanding of the company.
1: Yeah, certainly, Grant. So Altair has been around since around 1985, um, so over 35 years now. Uh, It was founded originally in in Troy, uh, which is near Detroit in in Michigan in the US, but it's now grown to a a company with over 15,000 customers globally. We have 86 offices around the world in 25 countries and over 3,000 employees. Uh, We supply over 150 software products um, in total, covering simulation, data science, high-performance computing, and uh, and also provide licensing for third-party applications through our partner alliance. Uh, here in Australia, we have um, eleven employees as well, based in Melbourne and Sydney. So yes, that's that's a very brief overview of
0: Altair. Um Can I ask what your what your markets are? Where are you selling your software to?
1: Well, our markets cover uh, almost every major uh, industry. Um, from, I guess you could say the the major markets. We we supply every single one of the world's major automotive and aerospace OEMs. Uh, we work across civil engineering, energy sectors, financial services, uh, heavy industry, and rail, government, and obviously defence. So yeah, a pretty broad cross section of of technologies, um, and even some you might not expect, like uh, like Facebook customers as well.
0: So what what is the software exactly? What are digital clones or digital twins?
2: So digital twins, in essence, is about creating a process of integrating different types of data streams that will help create a digital representation of the elements and dynamics of a system. Now, in our experience working with customers, uh, we actually have seen that digital twins have many different forms. So if you talk to the aerospace industry, for instance, for them, digital twins historically has been about taking, I guess, you know, reference drawings and converting them to digital models. But I guess from a larger perspective, digital twins have three major contexts um, in our experience working with customers. I think the first context is the scope or the scale of it. The scope of a digital twin can either be of sort of a physical system or a physical process where you're really trying to capture a digital representation of a part or a subsystem or a product or how the product performs with the environment, like a process, right? But digital twins um, can also be that of a biological system, like modeling the human anatomy or the human physiology and having a virtual patient library, if you will. We've also seen that digital twins uh, can also be of uh, financial models. So, for instance, there is this whole trend of creating digital twins of customers to be able to understand the uh, you know the behavior of how customers are using their credit cards to spend on different things and essentially track down fraudulent activities or suggest new things to buy and so on and so forth so that's the first context which is it can have different scopes uh, depending on whether you're looking at creating or digitizing a business process a physical process or a biological process the second angle digital twins has to do with the with the system life cycle itself so if you look at for instance any manufacturing company so let's say if you want to design a new car or a new robot at the concept level or even before the concept level when you're doing a lot of market research and you have your voice of customer analysis developed there is a version of what i call a pre-digital twin that our customers have been developing and so it's the I guess the, the, the term that our customers use is an as specified version of the product, where you're essentially using a macroscopic first principles mock up of how the product specifications can be uh, simulated. Right? But as you go down the maturity level, or rather as your program matures up, you can go from an as specified version of your twin to an as designed version of the twin, and then you can build your first physical prototype. And you could have a digital dynamics representation of that model. So that, that becomes an as-built configuration of your twin. And then as you mass-produce it, you have a, an as-manufactured variant of the twin. And last but not the least, as customers start using these products and there are you know lots of sensors that are mounted on these products and you're tracking customer usage, deriving insight off of an as-sustained version of the product is also a form of digital twin. So that's really the second leg. But at the end of the day, the key difference in our experience uh, between a digital twin and a computer-aided engineering model is that digital twins provide value. Um, we, We call it as a service value to our customers as customers. So it could be to help optimize for health or optimize for service or optimize for engineering or optimize for production or optimize for a business process i unpacked uh, i mean i gave you a lot of insight i suppose but happy to drill down on it, on any of these specifics
0: yeah there's there's quite a range of aspects there too the digital twin uh I, I don't seen it as an engineering thing so but yes of course the the whole aspect of even financial as well as biological is quite fascinating so Are you able to uh, give us some information about the capabilities and benefits of testing using computers through simulation, model-based systems engineering, that kind of thing, and these digital twins?
2: Yeah, absolutely. I I think the way to really wrap our head around uh, these confusing, quote-unquote, terminologies, like model-based systems engineering and digital twins, is to really look at uh, it in two different dimensions. I call it vertical silos, or breaking down vertical silos and breaking down horizontal silos. And then let me, let me describe that with, uh, with an example. Um, imagine you are responsible to design and develop a wind turbine. Okay, so at the concept level or at the inception, at the product definition level, all you have is a descriptive document that specifies what are the functional requirements of your turbine um, what's going to be the non, some of the non-functional requirements in terms of the transportation, the financial costs, and so on and so forth. But as you move from a requirements model to some concept design model, so let's say there are some module owners who develop the cell, you know, the blade, the tower, and all the other attributes of a turbine. They would start uh, creating different types of models, you know, either in computer aided design or computer aided engineering through simulation or sometimes they would just do it brute force through physical testing. Now, you should ask a follow-up question. How do these different groups across the different stages of the product evolution communicate and collaborate and share information with each other, right? And more often than not, in our experience working with large enterprises, we've seen that the predominant mode of communication is through documents. I even have this tagline uh, where I say that most of our customers have this Microsoft Office engineering suite as their uh, predominant way of doing engineering. So if someone runs a simulation, for instance, they would immediately uh, generate a report and then toss out a Microsoft Office document to the testing guy. The testing guy would do a whole bunch of experiments and he would essentially uh, share that information with an Excel spreadsheet. The assembly team uses their own set of PowerPoint documents to summarize use case diagrams and so on and so forth. Now, the more you centralize your collaboration and communication through informal documents, you're in a way creating lots of what I call lots of sources of truth within an organization. In other words, you're not really having a traceable system to go from start to end service of how your product Is functioning and what the overall program status and the health is so model-based systems engineering is a practice where you move away from informal or document-centric collaboration to using a common model as a communication language between different departments between different types of users and so the model that you develop within the mbse the model-based systems engineering platform can have different um, levels of fidelity and can have different sets of phenomena that it can model. You can have a static structure of how the different requirements can be broken down into smaller chunks to manage complexity. But you could also uh, model what I call different types of behaviors in terms of use cases, activity diagrams, um, different types of simulations that show how a product might behave in, uh, in, in a specific boundary condition or in a, in a specific field operation.
0: And I would imagine if you've got multiple different groups involved, they all have to run the same software and the same version of the software to be able to use the the model, or is it centrally located through the cloud?
2: Th- that's a great question. So um, different teams, uh, so there there are really two different dimensions. One is for a specific domain or for a specific component. So let's let's go back to the wind turbine example. So if someone wants to use aerodynamics programs to simulate the performance of the, the blades, if someone wants to use um, finite element analysis tools to understand the structural integrity of the tower, the, the general expectation with model-based systems engineering is that the higher-order models are open enough to be able to read and extract metadata from any source uh, or any other vendor or any other tool that you might use. So the more open, the more open architecture your model-based systems engineering tools are, the greater the adoption, uh, the more easier uh, it is to practice. Um, you know, I, I've heard this comment from some of our customers where they say that model-based systems engineering is like an IT burden for an engineer right? Because it's really like bookkeeping, doing a lot of program management and project management. And engineers just want to solve problems and build things and and see what happens in the field. And so while there is motivation, I think motivation alone is not enough. You've got to also take into consideration the ability. So the more easier and the more chunked down and manageable the uh, practice of model-based systems engineering is, you'll actually start seeing more and more people embrace the notion of using models as a collaboration point as opposed to just having an informal uh, strategy to communicate back and forth. So,
0: guys, a lot of our audience would have heard of digital twins or they'll work with digital twins um, in a defense context. Can you talk to us a little bit more about what some of the applications are of your software and this kind of approach in defense work?
1: Yeah, certainly. So... um... When we look at defence, there's two areas, right? We've got the Department of Defence side of things, the government side, and the supplier side, the primes, the SMEs that supply defence. And I guess what I would say is that currently, the the especially the newer programs, there's a lot of simulation, at least, being used both by uh, Department of Defence and and by uh, by the primes and their and their suppliers. And it's yes, yeah, certainly we're seeing more and more being done with each new program that comes online. So the applications primarily are, uh, are applications such as you know replacing tests with physical tests, which you know is expensive and takes takes a long time uh, to do. replacing that with with simulation uh, for the most part, at least in the development stages and the design stages, where simulation can can provide insights very quickly relatively at least as to where how the system's going to perform whether it's uh whether it's a platform as a vehicle or a subsystem on that platform and uh, what that allows is that you can then make changes to the design early on in the design and development cycles very very cheap and easy to do traditionally where you would have to do those tests physically, Uh, you've already gone through the design and development, you got to the prototyping stage, potentially spent millions of dollars uh, before you know whether it's going to work or not. Um, So this provides the ability to make those changes and get those insights very early on in the design cycles. So areas that, you know, traditional areas where you might do this are are things like stress analysis, looking at whether something's going to break, how long it's going to last uh, in terms of fatigue. And and that's still probably the the main areas that are that simulations used for currently. Where we're seeing a lot more rapid acceleration is is on things like uh, communication systems, um, antenna designs, uh, antenna placement studies, looking at interference patterns and radiation hazard, which again is extremely expensive to test at a platform level. You know, there's very few facilities that can do uh, even a vehicle level test for antenna patterns, let alone looking at something like a ship or an aircraft, which is just um, uh, has to be done uh, even more slowly with a handheld device. So being able to simulate these and visualize the performance uh, in 3D is, is, uh, is a real game changer in these areas. And again, most of the major players in the market are now employing some form of simulation to to capture these technologies. But there's always there's always new functionalities and new capabilities becoming available. So some of the new stuff that you know is still being used or actually starting to be used already is things like um, off-road vehicle dynamics modeling. You know, traditionally you've been able to simulate a vehicle going around a, a tarmac track or you know a rigid surface. With some of the new technologies that are becoming available, we can actually model sand and soil and predict how the uh, vehicles are going to behave in those in those scenarios, and actually test uh, the stability and traction control systems virtually. Um, so you know these are things that are very very difficult to to test uh, physically and to capture a large uh, a wide range of scenarios, because you know when when you look at this from in a physical test scenario, you drive a vehicle over a, over a sand dune, for instance, it changes the geometry of the sand dune. So you make changes to the control systems to improve the way it goes over that sand dune, for instance, but it doesn't, it's not the same sand dune. You can't you can't retest the control system uh in the same way. So the simulation, as well as being faster and providing an upfront solution, it allows you to to retest designs and, and scenarios and concepts on the exact same scenario, uh without weather conditions being an issue, without uh soil quality being an issue, without damage to the to the test track uh being an issue. So uh, so yeah, it can really provide significant value, and we are seeing more and more these technologies being uh, being adopted by by dif- both defence and uh, and by the primes.
2: And and just to expand on that, if I may, there is one more um, use case where we are seeing a lot of traction, and that's essentially getting the feedback loop from the the physical sensors into the digital models. So everything that Alex spoke about, you know, are what we call precision simulation models, right? And so there is a new set of apps and a a new trend, low-code, no-code, sort of data science applications that can be applied on top of engineering simulations to speed up, or rather to create surrogate models that can then be used to operationalize these models into a physical operation. So doing the round trip, for instance, from the, the physical sensor data from the field onto these real-time digital twin models that were generated using the precision simulations to either do anomaly detection and by extension predict the remaining useful life and do predictive maintenance are all, again, use cases where we have customers leveraging digital twins today.
0: Okay, can you um, give us some case studies, some actual examples of Projects LTS, Um undertaken, um, especially uh, Australian defense related if possible. And, um, you know, step us through some of those and the products and services you've got.
1: Yeah, certainly. So so the majority of applications and case studies we can talk about are more where we've supported our customers in in doing, doing the work activities, but we can certainly talk through some of what they've been able to do with our tools and support. Uh, so one example was uh, a company called IDES uh, down in South Melbourne. They had a challenge where they had to design a rollover structure for a vehicle platform, um, or design a structure at least that had to be suitable for rollover. So, obviously, to to prototype and test something like that again would be very expensive. So, they were able to use our simulation technology with uh, with our Radios solver to to simulate a vehicle rollover and validate their their design and make changes as as appropriate in order to, to make sure that when they do go to physical tests, that it passes first time and you're not wasting loads of money having to go back, redesign and reprototype. prototype Yes, yeah, so I guess that's one example from the supplier side. In terms of defense as well, Land Engineering Agency, uh, I think is quite well known as being a, a strong part of defense when it comes to engineering. And you know, they use our tools for, for simulating ra- things like radiation hazard for the antenna systems on, on the vehicle platforms and for doing stress analysis and uh, well, things like weld sizing studies uh, as well on, on those vehicle platforms. So, again, saving huge amounts of time and money um, by doing those those virtually. We also have, again, looking at the uh, electromagnetic side. Uh, BAE Systems and Talos uh, both use it for what's called uh, topside analysis. Uh, so on the on the um, uh, ship platforms and the frigates, um, again, it's 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 obviously it's impossible to get a ship into a, a, an anechoic chamber. So the the amount of effort and time it takes to do that uh, with a guy wandering around the ship with a a, a wand is is astronomical. So, you know, it still has to be done at some point, but most of the development can be done virtually. And you can be confident that when somebody does get sent around with the one that you're going to get the right results uh, and they're not going to have to be called back out again.
0: Does outside have any concerns about recruiting and maintaining talent in the current job market? A lot of companies are struggling at the moment with recruiting, particularly high-skilled workers. Um, obviously, there's a lot of competition. Is this something that you found as well?
1: yeah I think I think we we don't struggle too much, um just because we don't have a, a need to uh, for a large a very large team like some of the others do. Um, I know you know the people we work with, the organizations we work with, especially as multiple major defense programs are ramping up simultaneously, there is a significant skill shortage in Australia, especially for these sort of capabilities and these sort of skills. And uh, it's, it's just the sheer number of people that are required right now. And it's, uh, I know there's this general skills shortage, but, but yeah, this is massively exacerbated by, uh, by partly by the the requirements for defense. Um, You know, the, the requirements for defense uh, to be able to work in defense limits the pool of potential candidates significantly, but also just just the 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 scale of business you know it's it's the trouble with uh, defense procurement uh tradition uh, at least recently is that there's there's not been a, a consistent uh requirement for this capability it's been sort of fits and starts and I know it's the the plan going forward is you know continuous shipbuilding and to, to kind of maintain a, a capability over a number of years but you know right now we're at a massive ramp up stage we're not not at a situation where we're continuing on from other programs you know we're starting new major programs that are that require dozens of people on each and there just isn't the the resource uh in australia at the moment
0: yeah Alex, you, you touched on briefly there about the specifics of working with defence and uh, yeah, you need for people, Australian citizens with security clearances, things like that is, is one that you are alluding to there. Uh, we've seen that cause a lot of problems for projects everywhere. So how do you find working with defence in Australia, defence industry, uh, in terms of those complications? Uh, because many of your other customers, you could have resources from all around the world working on projects. How does Altera address those issues?
1: our primary business is is in the supply of the software and the training uh and support of the software and and all, to be honest the, the issues around security clearance don't affect us significantly in these areas it does you know in other industries we do consulting work as well and it does kind of prevent us from doing significant consulting work in defense because the trouble with things like security clearance is you need a sponsor to get the security clearance and to get a sponsor, you need a project, but you can't get a project without security clearance. And even if you could, the security clearances right now are taking six to nine months for NV1, which you know these programs don't have six to nine months to wait for people. What it means is that you know a lot of the time uh, we have some of our SME customers supply to defence already and have all these things in place, like security clearance, like DISP membership is another massive barrier to entry. You know, the the we looked, we did look at this, and we've decided not to bother at this stage because it's, you know, it's extremely onerous, and it and it limits what we can do in other industries as well, uh, and the way we operate our business. And so we, when these requirements come up, we often refer the primes, for instance, or defence to to some of our our partners and and SME clients that specialise in providing these services and have gone through the effort and and investments required to to get those security clearances and memberships in place.
0: Well, I think with that, we'll uh, wrap up the episode. Thank you, gentlemen. It's been great chatting with you. I appreciate your time uh, working us through digital twins, computer simulations and and modelling and so on. There's been some great benefits seen and and also the joys that we're experiencing with uh, applying these within the Australian defence industry and and defence in general situation. So, gents, thanks very much for your time.
1: Yeah, thanks a lot, guys. Thanks, everyone.
0: And of course, thanks to everyone for listening once again. And don't forget, if you enjoyed this episode, you can tell a colleague about us so they too can benefit from this show. Meanwhile, thanks for tuning in and we'll be back in the not too distant future with another informative episode. The ADM podcast is produced by Southern Skies Media on behalf of Australian Defence Magazine, a Yaffa Media title. The views of the people appearing on this podcast do not necessarily represent the views of Australian Defence Magazine, the Department of Defence or the guest's employer. If you wish to use any of the audio in this podcast, please contact Australian Defence Magazine via their website, australiandefence.com.au or via email at defmag at yaffa.com.au.
1: You've been listening to a Yappa Media podcast.
0: Southern Skies Media.